Hello and welcome. My name is Eric Erickson. I'm the host of Atlanta's Evening News here on WSB and the editor of TheResurgent.com. It is my pleasure to welcome you to WSB's annual Christmas presentation. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing all the plains and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous It is Eric Erickson here on WSB. For the next two hours, let's walk through the real meaning of Christmas, why we celebrate it, why it's such a big deal, and, well, how we've lost some focus on it, answering also your questions. I want to begin, though, as we do every year with this program, and it was kind of funny. Um, I started to, I pulled up the scripture and, and got it ready and thought, well, you know, if I read this in anything other than King James, people are going to, they're going to be confused. They're going to know where did I get this from? So in the original King James, <clears throat> if you'll allow, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into Bethlehem, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go, even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. 
And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 19. I want to focus for just a moment, if you'll allow, on a particular verse, verse 14. The angels, the heavenly host, they praise God and they sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We don't know what they sounded like. I've often wondered, you know, it was Jonathan Edwards who said that the that Scripture, Christianity, affects us. It affects our emotions, and that is how Christianity spreads through the world. It affects our emotions. It, it, it affects us in some way that mere words don't. Uh, music in him, we see Mary after Gabriel has told her that she will be with child, and that child will be the Son of God, that child will be the Messiah. She sings. It's poetry. It affects her soul such that mere words, sentences, they don't do. Song does. We have an entire book of the Bible, Psalm, that are songs. Songs, they, they ring with emotion, not just words, not just telling us what happened. They, they, they tell us emotion. They tell us feeling. And here, the heavenly host, they fill the sky. How many were there? We don't know the great sound. We don't know if it was music in the style of the Jews of the day. We don't know the language. Was it in Aramaic, Hebrew? Was it in Greek? Was it in a language that anyone who heard it would hear it in their own native tongue? We don't know how it was arranged. We don't know if the angels were in a choir or if there were instruments. If there were instruments, were there horns? Were there wind instruments? Were there string instruments? Percussion? How was it arranged? Were they in the round? If they were to appear today, would it be rock? Would it be pop? Would it be, would it be acapella? Would it be acoustic? Were there bass? Were there tenors? Were there altos? Were there soprano? We don't know. What we know is what is important. They sang. It was an emotional moment for them, as it should be, as Christmas should be for us. An overwhelming moment, but not as so many of us do. We get overwhelmed and depressed about the season, and will we make ends meet, and will we have the perfect gift? Will we get the perfect gift? This is a joyous occasion. The heavenly host, they sang. They sang, they celebrated. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We don't know what they sounded like, but we know what they said. We know it was music. You know, a friend of mine recommended a great letter from Martin Luther. He wrote this to the foreword of a uh, musical collection by a man named George Raw. Let me read this to you. I, Dr. Martin Luther, 
wish all lovers of the unshackled art of music grace and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. I truly desire that all Christians would love and regard as worthy the lovely gift of music, which is a precious, worthy, and costly treasure given to mankind by God. The riches of music are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In some, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our thoughts, minds, hearts, and spirits. Our dear fathers and prophets did not desire without reason that music be always used in the churches. Hence, we have so many songs and psalms. The precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself that God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling God. However, when man's natural musical ability is wedded and polished to the extent that it becomes an art, then do we note with great surprise the great and perfect wisdom of God in music, which is, after all, his product and his gift. We marvel when we hear music in which one, sing, one voice sings a simple melody, while three, four, or five other voices play and trip lustily around the voice that sings its simple melody and adorn the simple melody wonderfully with artistic musical effect, thus reminding us of a heavenly dance where all meet in a spirit of friendliness, caress, and embrace. A person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper, indeed, and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the brain of mules and the grunting of hogs. Martin Luther felt very strongly about music. But he makes a point. Music is a gift of God, an aesthetically pleasing gift, the heavenly host they sang. And what was their message? Their message so much more important than the sound of the song. It is that the Messiah has come. He's come to earth because God so desperately wants a relationship with us. A more accurate translation than the King James of what the angels were saying would be the English Standard Version, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, with whom is God pleased? You? If you want God, if you want God, God is well pleased with you. All you have to do is call on God's name. All you have to do is accept him. It's not hard. Come to God. Come to Jesus. Come to the manger. At a time he's most approachable, a babe in swaddling claws in a manger. That's all you have to do. Embrace him. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here on WSB's Christmas Presentation. 
That's George's own small town poets and on Christmas Day. And I forgot to say, I started the show with Third Day's Angels We Have Heard on High. Third Day, also great band, really good guys. Um, delighted to be able to incorporate great music from area churches uh, and local artists in this show. There are some great ones. Uh, we've got uh, Todd Fields from North Point coming up here very any minute. Uh, Surface of the Deep, the Athe uh, Community Christian Fellowship, uh, Third Day, of course, and so many more. I'm delighted to be able to do this every year. So many good artists. And, you know, one of the things I love about Christmas, I, I don't think I could listen to Christmas music every year. And if if I could confess something to you, it's just going to be our little secret. My wife does not like Christmas music, does not like to hear it. And it's not that she doesn't have her favorite songs, it's that she worked in retail, now I can feel the disturbance in the force of thousands of you nodding your head suddenly understand. Yes, she worked in retail and listened to Christmas music every single day over and over and over on repeat while working in a clothing store. And she just can't listen to it anymore. Completely burned out on it. But it's just it's amazing to me the number of artists who make not just general Christmas music. And by the way, I, I hate most of the secular crap for Christmas. Um, and you'll have to excuse me for saying it that way, but there are some, there are some really garbage Christmas songs out there uh, from people who want to avoid every single bit of the, the season and every meaning in it, but they want to make a Christmas song. So they come up with something that is just garbage, um, just genuinely terrible stuff. And I, I don't know why anyone lets them get away with it, but they do. You're not going to hear that garbage here. You know, you're just not, you know, one of the most surprising songs, you'll look it up because I'm not going to play it. Uh, Taylor Swift, of all people, uh, has a song, Christmas Must Be Something More. And she kind of does a call out, if you will, on some of the terrible music and whatnot from the Christmas season and saying that there's got to be some other reason for the music and explores that in the song. The Christmas lights, the Christmas songs, I love this time of year. This is Todd Fields from North Point. What child is this? Shepherds watch our keeping 
Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here, News 95.5, AM Yeah, they Creek Christian Fellowship, a great, great group. And I hope you will go find their Emmanuel Christmas album. I'm going to play part of a song, I Will Find a Way, is the name of it, uh, at the end of this segment. Beautiful song. It should be a pro-life anthem. You should go listen to it. Y'all, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, you know... One of the great things about being at Reformed Theological Seminary, where I've been going, um, meaningful also to do this year's Christmas presentation, having just gone through the Gospels class, um, I have a lot of great professors who are willing to say, I don't know. And one of the questions we don't really know the answer to other than to glorify him, but what we don't really know is, is the deep answer for it is, why did God construct this so? Well, he made mankind in his image and likeness, and because he made us in his image and likeness, we had a will, and Satan came into the world and tempted Adam and Eve, and I do believe that. You should know I do believe that. And they ate of the fruit they were commanded not to eat of, and they got the the knowledge of good and evil, and, and sin entered into the world, and God can no longer have a personal relationship with us where he can walk face to face with us in the garden. So we are exiled. We must be separated from God because God cannot abide sin. And so he begins to try to rebuild that relationship with us. It is a relationship we can't rebuild with him. He has to rebuild it with us. In Genesis 3.15, we get the Proto-Evangelicum, the, the, the first announcement of the gospel here, that God announces to the serpent that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And a lot of scholars say that he is a singular he, that one of Adam and Eve's offspring shall bruise the head of the serpent. And it's very clear Adam and Eve thought it was going to be Cain or Abel, and then they thought it was going to be Seth, and even Noah's parents thought it must be him. Noah's name means rest, Sabbath rest. They're trying to find the Sabbath rest again. They're trying to find that rest in the garden with God. They thought Noah might be the one. That's why they named him that, but he wasn't. And a long time passed, and many things changed. And then we get to Genesis 15. And God finds a man named Abram. He's told Abram to pack up, leave his family behind, go to a new land called Canaan. It will be the promised land. And he will make Abram's family as numerous as the stars. Eventually changing his name to Abraham. And all Abraham has to do is accept God as his one true God and worship him. And 
he and Abraham, they enter into a covenant. Uh, it is an agreement between the parties. And we know in ancient times what they did where there was no literacy in writing is the king would stand there and the servant would divide animals in half and would walk between the animals. And it was symbolic. It was a way of saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I'm going to be slaughtered like the animals by you, O king. And that's what Abraham does. He slaughters animals and he's prepared to walk between the parts. But before he can walk between the parts, God puts him in a deep sleep. And at night, Abraham has a vision of a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passing between the pieces. See what God's saying to Abraham? Abraham knew. He's telling Abraham, Abraham, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, I'm going to die for you. God is taking it on himself. He's keeping his end of the bargain and he's going to keep Abraham's end of the bargain. And God always keeps his promises. So then we get to Exodus and Moses brings down the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Exodus 24, 7. And Moses in Exodus 24, 8 took the blood of animals he had sacrificed and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. <clears throat> and so now they're saying, No, God, listen, if we break the rules, if we break the Ten Commandments, we're going to die. So now we have a problem. God tells Abraham if his descendants don't keep the covenant, he's going to die. And the people say, No, we're going to die. So God's going to die and the humans are going to die. Well, and then God tells David he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom for him. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, <clears throat> one I love to preach on, 2 Samuel 7. David wants to build a house for God. And God says, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people out of Israel from people of Israel out of Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God's telling David, I don't need a house. I've been living in a tent in the desert and I'm okay with that. I want to be with you. He's trying to get back to his people. He's trying to write the relationship. But further, God tells David, don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you an everlasting dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits inequity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men, but my love will never depart him. And then God reminds the people of this in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of these to the greatest for I will forgive the iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. But wait, but wait, but wait, but wait. How can he do that? God has promised to die if they screw up and God always keeps his promises. And the people, they've promised to die as well. How is God going to be able to forgive this and establish a kingdom? Two chapters later, God reminds them part of this covenant is an everlasting house of, of David. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and David. In those days, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. 
In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. How is this going to be? He's got to reconcile all these promises. He's promised to forgive, but he, God, has promised to die if they if they break the covenant. But they promised before the book, before God on Sinai, they promised to die. And God's promised to punish David's heir if he does wrong. How does he reconcile all this? Only God can do it. He so desperately wants a relationship with us. After separating the garden, he lives in a tent in the desert. And then comes God incarnate in the form of a babe in a manger, surrounded by animals. He goes from the garden to a tent, to a manger, to a cross, to a grave, to glory. He wants a relationship with us so bad. He reconciles all of his promises. All of the covenants are reconciled in one person, himself made flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, who will die on the cross as God and man united in one body with two natures, fully God and fully man. He'll die on the cross. He will conquer death and he will establish David's kingdom forever. All of our sins placed on him, just as he promised Abraham reconciling that promise with the promise we made to him that that humanity would die he places humanity since all on jesus as our representative he dies for us and then conquers death so that he can establish that eternal kingdom for david reconciling all those promises in himself in one person and we are, can reach out to him he wants to find a way to have a relationship with us he wants to be able to walk face to face with us again like he did in the garden and it's only possible through jesus martin luther said that on the cross that day when the sky went dark the greatest sinner who ever lived was jesus on that cross because all of our sins the past sins the present sins, the future sins they were all piled on top of him and through that process we can have a relationship again with god a right relationship we can one day walk again with him face to face in the garden and all you have to do is believe so easy scripture says he's knocking will you answer he wants to find a way to have a relationship with you and he's willing to be made flesh be born in a manger be willing to grow and be tortured and crucified on a cross and be placed in a grave and conquer death and rise to glory just to have a relationship with you that's why Jesus had to die, because God always keeps his promises. He wants a relationship with you so badly, so badly he wants a relationship with us. That's why Jesus had to die, because of all those promises. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because God gave us the greatest gift possible, a substitute for our sins through whom by our faith in him we can have a right relationship with God again. That's what this whole season is about. It's not about the perfect gift. It's not about the stress. It's not about going into debt. It's not about whether or not your tree just looks so, whether or not the ornaments are right. It's all about Jesus. What do we know of him, though? How do we even know this guy is real? I mean, maybe he's myth. Maybe he's legend. Maybe it's fabricated. What do we know? When we come back, let's explain Explore the historicity of Jesus and why so many Christians are willing to believe what others say is fantastic myth. At the end of this rundown tenement hall is the room of a girl. 
cowers behind all the dead bone locks, afraid of the outside world. So how should I come to the one I love? It is Eric Erickson here on WSB. You're listening to our Christmas presentation. If you'd like to listen to it again, you can text the word SHOW to 444-999, and I'll text you back the links to Apple iTunes, Google Play. You can also find us in Stitcher under the Eric Erickson Show. Happy to do that. One of the great joys I have of this program every year is finding local groups to contribute their music. One of the ones I've been fortunate enough to discover and just absolutely love is The Surface of the Deep. Uh, they're near Athens, and one of my favorite, favorite hymns is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, and they have a beautiful version of it. I would like to play it for you now in full, and when we come back, a biography of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is that guy? Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded, for with blessings in his hand. Christ our God to earth descended, our full homage to demand. King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful. His own self for heavenly food. Rank on rank the host of heaven Spreads its vanguard on the way As the light of light descendeth From the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. At his feet the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, Veil their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, 
Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here on WSB with our annual Christmas presentation. In the first light of a new day, no one knew, no one knew he had arrived. Things continued as they had been. But the heavens, but the heavens wrapped in wonder, knew the meaning, knew the meaning of his birth. In the weakness of a baby, they knew God had come to earth. Hear the angels, as they sing the morning of his birth. That again, Small Town Poets, a great Georgia group. They have some fantastic Christmas music. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, and the like. Who is this Jesus guy? I mean, I've walked you through the theology in the first hour. What about the history? Well, there are a lot of people who think uh, the historic Jesus is, is something completely different from the biblical Jesus. And essentially, it's like telling telling people, tell me what you know about George Washington, but you're not allowed to reference any of the eyewitnesses. You're not allowed to reference any of the people who actually saw him. You know, we accept that Socrates existed, but he didn't leave any writings behind. Socrates didn't exist, and we consider him a great man. I mean, we have the Socratic method, but he didn't write. All we know about Socrates, we know from other people. Plato, Xenophon, Aristophanes, they all wrote about Socrates. We we know about Socrates because of those three. And in the same way, we know about Jesus because eyewitnesses wrote about him. I mean, we've got Matthew, we've got Mark, which is the testimony of Peter. We've got Luke, written by a doctor who interviewed eyewitnesses. In fact, you know, in the first two chapters of Luke, where he's talking about Zacharias and he's talking about Mary, um, if you were to look at one of the oldest Greek manuscripts, which you would see if you were a scholar familiar uh, with the Koine Greek and Hebrew, is that this is someone who was talking to someone who is speaking Aramaic or Hebrew and translating it into Greek, uh, the idiomatic expressions. It's very clear he was doing interviews the way he wrote those first two chapters, probably of Mary, uh, and actually interviewing Mary. John, of course, is Jesus's best friend. So we, we've got uh, Matthew, we've got Peter, we've got John, three eyewitnesses. We've got Luke, who interviewed eyewitnesses. We've got Paul, who had a, a personal a physical encounter with Jesus. We've got uh, James, who was Jesus's brother. We've got Jude, who was Jesus's brother. So we've got seven eyewitnesses to Jesus who write the entire New Testament. Other than Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote Hebrews. Probably an eyewitness. Now, we also know about a guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was born in 130 AD in Turkey. He died in 202 in France. We know about him because he studied under a guy named uh, Polycarp, my favorite of the early church fathers. Polycarp was born around 69 AD. He was martyred in 155 AD. They tried to uh, burn him at the stake and the flames would not consume him. So they had to stab him in the heart. And Polycarp was friends with a guy named Ignatius, who was torn to pieces by wild animals in the Colosseum. 
Polycarp and Ignatius both studied under John. We know John existed because of Polycarp and because of Ignatius, and we know their documentations of, of John's preaching, and, and they verified John was an eyewitness to and friend of Jesus. And likewise, we know of Clement. Clement's actually mentioned in Philippians. Um, yet I also ask, yet I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. That's Paul writing. About Clement, we know about Clement. And Clement also verified Ignatius, he verified uh, Polycarp, he verifies John, he verifies Paul and Peter. We know all of these things. We have all these people. You've got to eliminate a lot of people from history who we know existed in order to say Jesus didn't exist. So then that gets you the question of, of well, what about this Jesus? Well, Mark 6 says, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did the man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and is the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters with him? In fact, Jesus' family confronts him. In Mark 3, they, they say that, He's out of his mind. They want him to come home. They're trying to stage an intervention. Jesus's mother and brothers are trying to stage an intervention for him. So we know he, he had a mom. He had a, a human dad. We know he had his brothers. His brothers were uh, James and Joseph and Simon or Simeon and, and Jude, we call him, not Judas for obvious reasons with Iscariot. Uh, we don't want him confused. And we think that James and Joseph, well, some think that they were first cousins. Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans think they're first cousins. Uh, they believe Mary was was ever virgin is the phrase. Even Luther and Calvin believe she was and that these were first cousins. I don't, just so you know. I think if you read uh, Luke 1 and 2, it seems very clear to, to presuppose Mary had additional children with Joseph. Uh, but James and Joseph, uh, Simon and Jude, they, they matched the naming convention of the day where the first child was named for the grandfather of the father or the father of the father. So Joseph's church history says his father was named James and his oldest son is James. And then the second child would be named for the father, and that's Joseph. So it seems like these are Joseph's kids, maybe by another woman, as some speculate. I don't know. But we know Jesus had brothers and sisters. And we also know that Jesus's mom knew he could do things. The wedding in Cana, Mary tells the, the people to do what Jesus says. Even though, think of that, Mary has the angel Gabriel appear to her and tell her what's happening. She knows Jesus has these abilities. And yet the other apostles, they document that Mary went with the brothers to claim Jesus was out of his mind. He needed to come home. They wanted him to come home. They didn't want him to be hurt. But then you can tell there's some frustration with him because in John 7, it documents that his brothers tell him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see your works, what you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They are basically mocking Jesus. They're saying, look, we are tired of you here. We want you to go, get out of town, be done with this. We're, we're out of town. And so he does, he leaves, he leaves. And he does eventually go to Judea and he is tortured and he is crucified. He is nailed to a cross. And you know who doesn't go to his execution? His family. Mary goes. But Jesus from the cross has to tell his best friend, John, this is your mother and tells Mary, this is your son. John's got to take care of Mary because Jesus' own family is not there for his execution. And yet we are told something at the beginning of Acts. Who was in the early church? Mary and Jesus' brothers. Something had to happen. I mean, listen, 
my sisters know me well enough to know I am not special. Can you imagine if they called me God? Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, they write books of the Bible, and they call him Lord. They call him God. Something had to have happened. The men who told him to get out of town tried to stage an intervention saying he was out of his mind, wouldn't show up as an execution. They wind up saying he's Lord. In fact, we know from Eusebius, who documented church history, how James dies. James rises. This is not James the Apostle. This is James, Jesus' brother, a separate person. He rises to be a leader in the early church. And the Jews or the, the leaders of Jerusalem come to him and they say, look, we don't know what's happening. We killed this guy like all the others who claim to be the Messiah and all their followers went away. But your brother is dead. And all these people keep rising up saying, no, he's not. He's alive. Will you tell them he's dead? Will you tell them he's not the son of God? And James says, I was wrong. And it enrages the leaders of Jerusalem and they carry him to the top of the wall of the temple and they throw him off as he is sharing the gospel, proclaiming to them that Jesus is the risen Lord, the Messiah. And he hits the ground and he's not dead. He's broken, he's battered, he's bruised, he's bleeding, he's dying, and he's still proclaiming Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And they stone him to death. Jude survives and takes his place in the church, according to Eusebius. He, too, eventually is killed. In fact, Jesus' entire bloodline through Joseph and Mary is wiped out. Jude's children are killed. Uh, Simeon apparently also killed, according to the early church histories. That's what we know about the historic Jesus. A whole bunch of people who refused to accept him as Lord, including his own family, refused in life to even show up at his execution, declare him to be the living God. Something had to happen. <laughs> Tell me the story of Jesus Write on my heart every word Tell me the story most precious The sweetest that ever was heard Tell how the angels and chorus Sang as they welcomed his birth Glory to God in the highest Peace and good tidings on earth Tell of the cross where they nailed him Writhing in anguish and pain Tell of the grave where they laid him And tell how he liveth again Oh, love in this story so tender Clearer than ever I see Stay, let me weep while you whisper Love paid the ransom for me Love paid the ransom for me.
I picked this piece personally. Welcome back. Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. I, I picked this piece for a personal reason, I should say, and that is, uh, this is uh, Benedictus. It is a work uh, compiled by R.C. Sproul, who went home to the Lord last week, a brilliant theologian who was concerned about the intellectual heft of American evangelicalism. Uh, he of Ligonier Ministries uh, and... St. Andrew's Chapel in Florida. Uh, Benedictus is uh, Zachariah's prayer. Now, why? Let me just finish my thought from the last segment here, real quick. Something had to have happened for Jesus' brothers, who the eyewitnesses, these are eyewitnesses. John is an eyewitness. He is Jesus' best friend, and he says that the brothers told Jesus to get out of town. Mark's account is of Peter. Peter was an eyewitness. He was a friend of Jesus's. And he says they came for an intervention. They said Jesus was out of his mind. John, the eyewitness, the entire, all of the gospel accounts show none of them came to comfort Mary at her eldest son's funeral or execution. They weren't there. They didn't show up. They wanted nothing to do with them. And yet in the early church, they're there proclaiming him to be the risen Lord. They become leaders of the early church. Something had to have happened. Paul documents that Jesus appeared. Before appearing to Paul, he had appeared to over 500 people. There were eyewitnesses, many illiterate, many poor. You know, one of the reasons Christians say this stuff has to be true because no one would have actually made it up this way is who is the first announcement of the gospel to? Go back to the first hour. It's the shepherds. The shepherds are given the gospel message. Shepherds were considered thieves and so unreliable that they weren't even allowed to testify in court. They were blamed for everything. And yet these are the people that the angels appear to. Something had to have happened. And there are all sorts of people who want to give all sorts of explanations. As Albert Schweitzer said, he noted, the historic Jesus always looks like the person writing about the historic Jesus. But the theological Jesus, the real Jesus, looks like God. Schweitzer didn't say that. I'm saying that. Folks, something had to have happened. It, 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 there were so many people who came before saying they were the Messiah and they weren't. Something was unique about Jesus. And the eyewitnesses say it was because it's real. You're not going to believe if you don't want to believe. I can't convince you if you don't want to believe. But I'm telling you, something happened. Something happened to make his own family believe and become leaders in the church. When we come back, why Christmas on December 25th? Family hiding from the storm Found no place at the keeper's door It was for this a child was born To save a world so cold and hollow A sleeping town they did not know Lying in a manger low, a savior king who had no home has come to heal our sorrows. Is there Day. They're all familiar. 
This is Sarah McLaughlin singing a beautiful, beautiful poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It became a great, great hymn sung in churches. It's actually a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it is a song built in tragedy. Longfellow, you see, had lost his wife who he adored. She was his second wife. His first wife had died. She, the second wife of 18 years, burned to death in a house fire. And two years later, Charles Longfellow, his son, wanted to go off to war, and Longfellow refused, would not give him his blessing. On March 14, 1863, Charles decided he was going to go anyway. He was going to go off to war, whether or not his father gave his blessing, and so he did. And at Christmas time in 1863, Longfellow got a letter notifying him that that November, Charles had been severely wounded in the Battle of New Hope Church, Virginia. And so there Longfellow was, thinking his son was going to die. He had lost his wife. He was in despair. And he began writing this song, and he got to these lines. In despair I bow my head There is no Again, Sarah McLaughlin singing. She has such a lovely voice. And Longfellow's words, capturing his moment there, mourning the death of his wife still, worried about his son. Would his son survive? In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But Longfellow realized there's a God, there's a creator, and his will be done. He realized that, well, there was a living God, a babe in a manger, who would grow and die on a cross and conquer death, that we all might live, if not in this world, in the next for sure, if all we have to do is believe in him. And he changed his tune at the end of this song to this. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I know there are a lot of people who get overwhelmed this Christmas season, and I need to be honest with you. I've done this show, and I have shared the gospel, and I've told you what I know about Jesus. And, I mean, I, I'm in a moment right now in my family where I'm like, well, God, what, what's going on here? I'm not going back to Fox next year. I mean, we've got credit card bills and car payments and mortgage and medical bills and uh, 
need the income. I mean, it's half our family income. And I'm like, what's going on here? Trying to let the kids enjoy Christmas. I, I am I am living what I preach every year on radio right now of trust in God. And he and I have had some heated conversations. And I mean, I, I honestly, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't. And it has me worried. But you have to trust in the Lord sometimes. You don't know. Like Longfellow, trust in the Lord and realize he's in charge. He is sovereign. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Longfellow was facing far worse than I am. And some of you are facing far worse. I mean, you literally don't have a job, some of you. You're you're stressed, even those of you who do. And I am here to tell you there is a babe in the manger who is here for you. He was willing to live in a tent in the desert. He was willing to be born in a manger, a food trough. And he wants to have a relationship with you if you'll let him. And so I hope you will. Why do we celebrate his birthday this time of year? Well, long story short, I know a lot of you grew up that this was Christians co-opting Roman celebrations. And actually, there's a good enough historic evidence to show it might have been the Romans trying to co-opt back Christianity. Because the early Christians wanted nothing to do with the pagan holidays. They didn't celebrate birthdays even because that was considered Roman. But the reason that they needed to determine Jesus' birth is they didn't. They just had as a byproduct of what they were looking for, which was when did he die? Because they wanted to know the date of Good Friday. They wanted to know the date of the crucifixion so they could figure out the resurrection. What what time of year was it? And they had a strong belief, a strong belief carried over from Judaism that a prophet, and they believed Jesus was a prophet, that a prophet died on the day was conceived. And Tertullian, the famous theologian apologist of the very early church in 200 AD, calculated that it it was March 25th. And so if the prophet died on March 25th and was conceived that day, well, then they knew it was nine months for delivery. Fast forward, and where do you land? December 25th. Conceived on March 25th, born on December 25th. Current calendar, of course, you understand. Conversion made. In the Eastern Church, they were also trying to figure it out, and and they knew the class of priest Zacharias was when he was in the temple tending it when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and they figured that he was in there sometime in October towards the end of October and they realized that Mary had the angel Gabriel appear six months later. So if it was the end of October and it was six months later that, that the angel appeared to Mary, it would have been the end of March. They knew Tertullian had come up with March 25th. They said, well, I'll be. It must be December 25th is his birthday, and they began to note it that way. They didn't celebrate it. The first celebrations were around 300 A.D. of Christ's birth at December 25th for those reasons, not because they were trying to co-opt holidays. In fact, it looks like the Emperor Aurelius, he imposed Saul Invictus, the Feast of the Unconquered Son, on December 25th. And he did it well after the Christians had set Jesus' birth date as December 25th. It looks more and more like probably what was going on here is that uh, the emperor, Aurelian, was saying, you know what, this is, we're going to take this back. And of course, in the 11th and 12th century, um, you started getting criticisms of Christianity cropping up in Europe. And they were saying, you know, maybe they were, they put Christmas on December 25th because of Saul Invictus. And they're saying he's the real unconquered son. Well, it, it looks like it was quite the opposite. It was the Romans who did it, tried to take it all back. What matters, though, is not the date. What matters is it happened. 
No major historian doubts that there was a Jesus. They may doubt he's the Son of God. They may doubt he's the Messiah. They may doubt he performed miracles, but they don't doubt he lived. I don't doubt he lived. And I may be doubting right now. I I may be just consumed with worry. I mean, my family motto, why pray when you can worry? I feel overwhelmed sometimes worrying about what's next. What's next in my career? Am I just going to be doing evening drive time in Atlanta forever? What's next? What about TV? What about the resurgent and and the website and my syndicated call? What about all these things? And really what it comes down to is you just sometimes you got to trust the Lord and he works on his own schedule. It doesn't work on your schedule. I'd prefer him to come back tomorrow and relieve us all of the burdens we've got right now. But you just got to trust in the Lord. You've got to understand that his time is divine. His time is perfect. Many of you this season, you are so overwhelmed like me. You've got more burdens than me. And you don't know what to do. Don't worry about building the perfect memory. Worry about the perfect sacrifice. And don't worry about that. Embrace it. This can be a trying time. I know it can be a trying time because I am living it right now. I am absolutely living it and I am fearful. And you know, I just want the winning lottery ticket. I want someone to write me a fat check to pay off all my debts. I I want something. I want God to take care of it. I need him to. So I understand what some of you are going through, but I also understand that scripture says that tomorrow will take care of itself. Put your worries on Jesus. He'll carry him for you. He'll carry that burden for you. And I believe he will. I I genuinely, truly, I, I believe he will. And sometimes it's frustrating. And sometimes we want an immediate answer and, and we don't see it. Well, you just got to wait. You got to be patient, folks. There is a cradle in Bethlehem. There is a God in Bethlehem. And he's there for you if you'll accept him this Christmas season. As we round out the Christmas special, a lot of people ask me, why, why do I share so much? Uh, there are a lot of things I don't share, but I share the struggles and problems in our lives with my wife and me and her struggle with cancer and our present situation with uh, TV and worrying about paychecks and everything else because so many people put on a perfect life on social media and none of us have a perfect life. We're all sinners in need of the baby in the crib, Jesus. And so I want you to know that we all go through these walks and I thank you for listening this year. It has not been an easy year, and so I thank you for your prayers for my family and me. And I thank this station for allowing me to share the gospel message with you and this Christmas message for two hours today. No state, Not every station would do this, and I'm glad they do. 
And so I thank WSB. And on behalf of WSB and the Cox Media Group, I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And would like to leave you with a song I used to listen to as a kid every night during the Christmas season and still do almost every night. It's one of my absolute favorites. Merry Christmas. Yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a The Yuletide game Next year all our troubles will be miles away Once again as in olden days Happy golden days of your Until then